Philippians 4 this morning, and I want to say that I thought in God's plan and providence that we're going to take several weeks to wrap up Philippians 4, but we're going to see how the Lord uh, takes me through uh, the text this morning, takes us through the text this morning. We may be actually finishing off Philippians 4 this morning. Uh, Let me read to you Philippians 4, 10 through 23 to get us started, all right? Follow as I read. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, I told you before that I would uh, give you a little bit of an update on what I've been up to for the last five weeks. Uh, It was a long time to be away, and I'm very appreciative of uh, the associate pastors picking up the preaching ministry and the day-to-day operations here while I was gone. I, they did yeoman's work, and I was thankful for that. Uh, one thing that stands out to me from being away that ties directly into the text that we're looking at this morning is that as believers, as Christians, you have and I have entered into a two-family way of life. We have two families. We have immediate families, you know, a lot of us are married or um, have children or have a household. We have extended family. All of that is sort of our blood family that we enjoy and experience, right? And then we have a different family. We have a new family. We have another family, and that is the family of God. We have the household of faith. We have brothers people that stick closer to the biological brothers. We have friends in the body of Christ, right? We have father figures, mother figures. We have children who who are like our own in the family of God. We enjoy family. And as we were away, and I was in Lynchburg, Virginia, uh, you know, with Judy's family and with cousins and with um, her sisters, it was a wonderful time to be with that particular family. I saw my parents as well down in Virginia Beach, just a couple hours down the interstate. So I spent time there putting my kids in the home with their grandparents, enjoying family time together. 
we, I saw, you know, different family members that I haven't really connected with on those levels for quite some time, and you know that story being here in Alaska. But there was also another family that we very much enjoyed, and that was the family of God. Because when we went to Lynchburg, we stayed at really the backside of a church in a house that that family of God there provided for us. Timberlake Baptist Church is pastored by a friend of mine who's been here and has preached before and is actually is quite the hunter. He's a bowman, and he's, you know, taken some Alaskan um, bears out. And he was actually coming here a few days after we came there. He was coming here on a hunting trip, and so we sort of swapped worlds. It was wild. But that church family heard about Judy's mom and her having ailing health, and our specific need to be put up for several weeks. And when I talked to that pastor, he said, listen, we've got a home that we actually set up for missionaries. We set up several homes around our church property, and one of these homes has your name on it. So let us serve you. You've vulnerably opened yourself up to the need, and so we got, you know, free board, you know, no bills to be paid on that house, wide open, you know, church members coming in and out, making sure that our needs were met making sure everything was clean, making sure all the facility was up and running. That family of God took care of us. And it's wild because to watch the exchange between two different kinds of families at work in my life showed me the blessing of God that happens through two families. My parents, you know, they helped out to get us uh, east uh, financially. Um, Judy's mom did as well. And then us coming back, the church helped us to bring us back in terms of eight coming back, you know, via American Airlines. American Airlines, it's never the same, you know, when we all travel at the same time. So everybody was pitching in. The church family here and there was pitching in to facilitate vital ministry in our lives. And then also our blood family was participating to be a blessing to us. And so as believers, we're really stewards of both, aren't we? We're supposed to take care of both families in our life, in our lives. We're supposed to provide for our kids 1 Timothy 5 says, if you don't provide for your own, you're worse than an unbeliever. So we're called to provide. We're, we're called to put food, clothing, and shelter over our families. We're called to take care of our parents like we just did going east. We're called to do that. But let me say this as well. There is perhaps even more of an emphasis in Scripture in terms of financial giving that goes towards your second family, the church. There is an emphasis towards being community to each other, being there for each other, praying for each other, and serving one another, and also giving your financial gifts to one another. It's true. Acts chapter 2 makes it very clear that when the church was getting going and the 3,000 were saved, they were throwing in together. Verse 44, they, Acts 2, 44, they were having all things in common. People were selling property so they could give part of their money away to other people to sustain the growing movement of the local church, a church that's going to be built by Christ. The church was throwing in together. 
Giving has always been a form of worship all the way back from the first sacrifice that Abel made. But it's giving to God and it's giving to people in the community that the Bible again and again repeats that we're supposed to participate in. Let me show you one passage of scripture that highlights this. Second Corinthians chapter 9 verse 7. Look at this in your Bibles, please. Second Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 7, we'll start in verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one, here it is, verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We're called to Give. We're called to sow seed. If you turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you look at another passage on giving. This was Paul's commendation of the Philippian church that was in Macedonia. He was saying that grace, verse 1, the grace of God has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Giving. The church is commanded to give. The Proverbs talk about giving your first fruits. Malachi talks about bringing a tithe into the storehouse. Giving. It's part of what God does in your heart when you become a believer. Guess what? When you were born again, your heart changed from being a taker to being a giver. Why do you give? Because you, you realize on a heart level, Christ gave all of himself to me, so I can't hold everything back for myself. I can't be just a consumer. I can't be a Judas Iscariot who is a taker. No, I need to be the other disciples who became givers. Givers. Zacchaeus, when he was born again, what did he do? He gave he gave. He became an extreme giver over and above what he was supposed to give back. He gave more. The Bible says, give and it shall be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together and running over. We're just, we're transformed to by faith become givers. We want to give. So I want to ask the question, why should we give? Now I've given some rationale for why we should give. It's our obligation we're commanded to give we overflow in giving because we've been transformed but philippians 4 gives some very clear practical reasons and outcomes for why we should give let me say it this way something happens in your heart when you give when you release funds when you cut the cord and send a ship sailing out that you have no strings connected to. You're just giving it away for the sake of the gospel. What happens? Well, let me frame that idea in a big idea statement. I think we have it up on the board. When you invest your resources, you invest your heart. Okay? When you invest your resources, your heart goes with your resources. 
Again, one more passage before we get into Philippians 4. Matthew chapter 6 is where Jesus said, Do not lay up or store up treasure on earth where moth and rust will destroy, but lay up your treasure in heaven. Why? Why do you give your money away? Why do you give it heavenward? Well, it does something to your heart. Look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a verse that says, when you invest your money, you're investing your heart. You're setting your heart on God's kingdom when you send your money to God's kingdom. It's true. It's kind of like backing, you know, a political leader. You know, if you, you financially invest yourself in a political leader, you're concerned about what that person's saying and where that person's going and how that person is doing. The success, the rise and fall of, of his message or her message goes with your backing. And it's the same thing in the body of Christ. It's like, it's like investing in a stock and watching the sine wave of the stock go up and down. Your heart is invested that way. Well, this is so much greater than those examples in kingdom work. You can't always preach a sermon. Some of you would be terrified to preach a sermon or teach a class, but you can financially back preaching. You can financially back teaching. You can financially back missionaries. You can financially do things where you send your heart and your backing to people here locally and across the world by investing your money. That's what is happening here in Philippians 4. In fact, Paul is wrapping up all that he's saying and centering it around the heart and hearts of this local church who gave money his direction for his ministry. And we kind of gave an overview of that several weeks ago, but let me bring us up to speed. Why do you give? Here's point number one, and this will bring us up to speed, and then we'll get into new territory in a few moments. Number one, you give because giving communicates love. Giving communicates love. Look at this in verse 10. This is Paul. He, he felt loved. He's in prison, and he's expressively exploding the response that he received from giving. Look at this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. What's Paul doing here? You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen. And just to give you a little backstory, it's been about 10 years since he's had contact with this church. He's been in Roman imprisonment. He's through his missionary journeys. His second missionary journey is where 10 years ago, Paul and Silas had planted the church. They went into Philippi. Uh, They got incarcerated. They got jailed for preaching the gospel. They got jailed for interrupting a a demonized girl's, uh, you know, demonic cultic ministry. They got jailed for these things. But Lydia had come to Christ while they were there. The Philippian jailer came to Christ. This demonized girl probably came to Christ, and a church was born. And so they had um, skin in the game at this church. And then Paul carried on his mission in ministry and ultimately ended up in jail under Caesar and Nero in Rome. And so 10 years had passed and there was a knock at the door. And who was it but Epaphroditus? Maybe somebody that Paul had led to Christ as a young man who was now probably a church leader in Philippi, maybe the pastor of the church. He knocks on the door, and what that represents is Epaphroditus had walked on the Ignatian Highway. You can look it up later in your Bibles or Google it or whatever. But the Ignatian Highway, which was a 300-mile jaunt 
to get to Paul's door. Somehow the church at Philippi found out where Paul was, and, and they immediately had a revived concern. That's what Paul's talking about. Their, their hearts opened up. Paul's not condemning them for somehow losing touch with him. It's hard to keep in touch in the ancient world. But as soon as they knew where Paul was, Paul's saying, your heart bloomed towards me, and you sent Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus, as we found out earlier in the book, nearly died. He risked his life getting to Paul. He nearly died on the way, but showed up with a lot of money and, more importantly, a lot of love and generosity behind that money to support Paul. That's what's going on. He's saying, look, this word's concern in, in verse 10 means thinking. You're thinking about me. You care about me. You knew I had a need and you met it. And you even risked people in the church, their life, for him to come and do that. And that means so much to me. An example of this might be like, you know, if you give something that you know your teenager or your young child really wants. You know, you, you find out about something that they're thinking about, that they're stoked about and meditating on it, and they open up the gift, and it's like, wow, you knew exactly what I wanted. I can't believe it. Guess what's happening? That child knows that you as a parent care about them very specifically. You care about their needs. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's rejoicing. Not in the money, but in the heart and generosity behind the money. Really, Paul is saying, I'm so thrilled because I know that as a church, you're growing. You're growing. You're doing well. Your heart is heavenward. You're not worshiping the God of this world in money. You're giving freely. And so he's glad that they're growing. And so as Paul is saying, this is what the gift meant to me in verse 10, he immediately turns the corner and wants to deconstruct a false stereotype of the preacher who asks for money all the time. I mean, this is a money sermon, is it not? Well, Paul wants to make sure that he's not misperceived by, by expressing the love that he's experienced through a gift. He doesn't want to be misperceived as some sort of false teacher, weirdo cult leader who is, you know, has eyes full of greed, as Second Peter says or Jude says, where he's saying, look, give me more money because it makes me so happy. He, he wants to deconstruct that right away. Look at verse 11. Not that I'm speaking in need of being in need. I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's Paul doing? You know what he's doing? He's, he's saying, look, whether you actually sent me a whole lot of money or not, that's not my concern. My concern and my thrill in my heart is that you're a giver and you're generous. In fact, Paul is on death row, right? He doesn't die at this point in his legacy and his missionary history, but he doesn't know for sure that he's not going to die. He doesn't know he's not going to be executed. So really, he's not thrilled that he has more money. He's thrilled in Christ. When he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Paul is saying, look, I am fully self-sufficient in Christ, and I want you to know that. And he uses this as a teachable moment to say, yes, the gift meant a lot, but the heart behind the gift is what really meant a lot. And by the way, I'm fully sustained in Christ who's giving me strength. And so, point one, why do you give? You give because it communicates love like nothing else can communicate love. I mean, we've received some gifts. We've been given some um, a gifts even anonymously recently from the church or members of the church or whoever. There's nothing that communicates love more than giving. 
I mean, the church in Lynchburg, when they gave us use of that house, it immediately connects our hearts to those people on an intimate level. And it's not just, wow, we feel good because we received the gift. They feel good because they gave the gift, right? What's more fun, getting a gift on Christmas morning or being excited about how that person's going to respond to the gift that you gave them, right? That's where the joy is. It's more blessed to give than receive. But this reciprocity, this reciprocal dynamic was happening in the life and heart of Paul. So that's number one. You give because it communicates love. And then number two, giving connects you to the mission. I know that some of you perhaps have um, struggled to engage in church life and church mission. Uh, Life is busy. Priorities rule our lives. How can you become more engaged in local church mission work? How can you be more engaged in our church or in missionaries who are out and about around the world? It's by giving. Remember my big idea. When you invest your resources, you're investing your heart. You don't just invest in people personally. You also need to be those who invest your heart in the mission. Paul explains this. Begin in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Let's stop there. Again, let me just bring you up to speed from the book of Acts. You've got got Paul and Silas on their second missionary journey where they have planted the church at Philippi. They'd been beaten up for it, but the church was planted nevertheless. And obviously they made a big impact because Paul and Silas and Timothy moved from that missionary post immediately to Thessalonica. They went to Thessalonica. After that, they ended up in other areas. But Thessalonica is what is picked up here on here by Paul. And he's saying that as soon as I began ministry away from Philippi, guess what you did? You sent money to back up that next step in ministry. Do you see that? It says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Paul was putting himself at risk on the mission field. When he went to Thessalonica in Acts 17, guess what? He was preaching the gospel in the temple, minding his own business, explaining that Jesus is the answer to the Old Testament. Jesus is the solution to the mysteries of the Old Covenant. He's explaining that, and people got really, really upset because high officials and leaders were getting saved, and common people were getting saved. It says leading women in Acts 17 were getting saved, and so Jews were very upset. And so what they did is they they went to troublemakers in the town of Thessalonica and they created riots and mobs to come after Paul as a preacher. And they accused Paul. They said, look, this man and these men are turning our world upside down. And they didn't mean that as a compliment. They're shaking things up here. And guess what? They're also saying that there's another king, another lord, another Caesar that's above Nero. They're saying it's King Jesus. And that's what it's all about. Another king, not Caesar. So there was tremendous risk on Paul's head at this point. In fact, they they were staying at Jason's house, and they dragged Jason out, and somehow Paul escapes from the mob. But what I want to point out here is that giving from the Philippians was risky business. It was. For 
the church at Philippi to give their money, and it would have been 100 miles away from Philippi to Thessalonica. For them to send money meant that they were associating with Paul's message. When you give your money and you give your resources, you are connecting yourself to the mission. And so when he says, you shared in my trouble, he means that you put yourself at personal risk under the Roman Empire when you sent your backing for me in Thessalonica. You shared in my trouble. You put yourself at risk. The Roman Empire could come rain down fire on you and put you in prison for giving me money. Another thing is this. They felt the highs and lows of the missionary Paul by giving money. When you, again, when you give your resources, your heart goes up and down with how it's going with the person that you're backing and supporting. And that's Paul, that's what he's talking about. The word share here is koinonia. He's saying you came into common life and fellowship with me through giving to me. That's what he's saying. The apostle Paul was very vulnerable. He said, you made yourself vulnerable as a church by doing that. You know, there were mocking preachers we talked about earlier in the, in the book of Philippians. Remember this? Mocking preachers who wanted to distance themselves from Paul because he was in jail in Rome. And they gave the right gospel, but they mocked Paul while they were doing it to, to keep themselves safe from being persecuted. They didn't want to be thrown into jail, but the church at Philippi didn't care. They went for it common in common with look at this Paul goes on he says you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I first left Macedonia no church entered into partnership look at that word partnership that is koinonia no church entered in on this level where you engage a mission at a heart level but you you're the only one that did that now Paul he didn't always receive gifts from churches I, the only church that i found in scripture where he's receiving direct money from them is macedonia is the church at philippi when he went to thessalonica he worked with his hands he was a tent maker he, he didn't want to put a burden on anyone so he didn't receive any backing there when he went to corinth he came under great scrutiny for receiving gifts from philippi at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he was accused by false teachers of robbing the churches in Macedonia. So Paul sarcastically sort of rebukes Corinth for saying that, but he didn't take money from the church at Corinth. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 9.14 talks about how the laborer or the gospel minister is someone who is supposed to or is able to make his living on the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9.14. But Paul chose not to make his living on the gospel with that church in Corinth because there was confusion going on. So he kept himself out of that scrutiny. 1 Timothy 5.17 says that preachers, those who are elders set apart for the word ministry, are worthy of double honor. So there is freedom to make your living on the gospel, but Paul did not always choose to do that. But guess what? He did with the church at Philippi. There was a reciprocal dynamic that was going on with them. Look at how he says it. He says, verse 15, in giving and receiving. You know, when you give your money, there's a two-way dynamic that goes on, and there should be. When it's given rightly, when you're giving it with no strings, you're giving it as worship to God, and when, watch this, when someone is willing to be humble enough to receive the gift, there is a blessing that is exponentially great. It's greater than perhaps any blessing you can experience in this life. It's where Paul was humble enough to say thank you and receive it. You know, when we asked to be put up at that house in Lynchburg for a month, 
the pastor there, um, when he was sort of working through the details with Judy before I came, said, listen, we're so glad to be able to do this for you for a couple reasons. One, our church needs to sort of get up out of its seat, out of its comfort zone, and serve. And to watch them serve and be a part of this and meet this need is exciting for me as a pastor. That's what he said. And then secondly, he said, you know, there's a lot of people who wouldn't ask for help. And you guys have asked for help, and this is blessing my life as a pastor and our church as a body. Giving and receiving. We shouldn't always ask. We shouldn't always burden people. Paul didn't always ask. He didn't always burden people. But sometimes it's very appropriate to humbly receive help and support from others. So you're sharing in suffering when you give. And secondly, you're sharing in the mission. Giving, it communicates love. And secondly, it communicates, it connects you to the mission. Now thirdly, and perhaps this is the most important point. I think it is. I think this is Paul's main thrust in the text as he's winding up the book of Philippians. Giving consecrates your heart to God in worship. Giving, it, it, set apart, it sets apart your heart in worship to God. Listen, when you give in the kingdom, it's always two-directional. Watch this. When you give and you're giving to someone to meet a need or you're giving to a church mission or you're giving to a missionary, you're, you're giving to a person. But really, look, you're giving upwards to God. It's two directions. You give as worship to God. It's going to people, but really your heart is going up to God in worship as you give, right? That's how it should be. Giving is worship, so your heart goes up, and guess what happens? God rains down blessing in your heart. It's two-directional. You, you give, and God gives back to you. That's Paul's point. Giving is worship because it consecrates your heart to God. How does this look? Well, look at verse 17. God promises to grow you. Paul says, look, not that I seek the gift. Again, he's trying to deconstruct any idea that he's got a false motive here by talking about giving so much. He's not seeking the gift. He says, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Stop there. When you give out of the right heart and you give freely and willingly and openly to the Lord's work, God promises to grow you. When you sow bountifully, when you sow the seed willingly, guess what? God will rain blessing down in your life. He will, he will grow you. Uh, the idea here is there's accounting language here in verse 17 where he's talking about fruit that's like increasing to your credit. There is spiritual equity being built in your life as you release funds for God's kingdom work. Now, I'm not saying that we should give everything away because we do have to provide for our family, right? Our physical family, immediate and extended. We need to do that. We need to invest to provide for the needs of our family members. I get that. But there's that whole other category where you give out of what you reasonably believe you're supposed to give out of your own heart, out of your own wealth, maybe even pushing it a little bit to the edge where you give more than, more than you reasonably think you should. And you give that money away. And what does God do? He grows you through that. Sometimes to the degree that you test your bank account is to the degree that which he's accrediting your spiritual account and growing you through sacrificial giving. God promises to grow you. Now look, God is not your debtor. 
we, we, are, we are not obligating God to bless us by giving. I in no way am going to preach or promote a health and wealth gospel. That's ridiculous. I think health and wealth um, gospel preaching that happens a lot of times on the TBN network is blasphemous, heresy. It's damning, it's condemning, and it's tickling the ears of the congregations that gather around that in throngs. They want to hear it because they believe that giving is somehow um, a way to promote their life here on earth. And I think it's blasphemous. I think it takes the focus off of Christ, and it makes giving something other than worship, it makes it like a business transaction in a self-help dress. It's just gross. Where they say, look, if you'll just give more money, and you give it by faith, then you'll be happy, and you'll be healthy, and you'll be blessed in physical ways. That's not what Paul is saying here at all. Remember, Paul is on death row. He's not concerned about health and wealth. He's, he's not even concerned that the church at Philippi will be physically or financially healthy and wealthy. He knows that they're at risk by giving money. What he's concerned with is spiritual growth. Look, what flies in the face of health and wealth is just the story in Acts. I mean, people died for their faith. People died as they gave money away. People died when they got baptized. Stephen died as the first martyr. Peter died, and as history notes, was upside down crucified. Jesus Christ came here. You want to talk about health and wealth? He suffered and died. The kingdom wealth and health that comes is the other side of glory. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't promise to provide food, clothing, and shelter. He does. Matthew 6 talks about this. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and he'll add things to you. And many of you could come up on a cycle here and testify about, you know, we gave and we didn't know where the money was going to come from. We didn't know how this need was going to be met. And it happened, and it was amazing. And praise God, he provided for my needs. And that is a general promise given. But guess what? God's promise does not also contradict the teaching in Scripture that says we are called to suffer and deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. We're called to live with a death sentence on our head and to risk ourselves and realize that God may provide food, clothing, and shelter as a blessing here, and it may transpire later on in the new heavens and the new earth in the kingdom there. Eternity is not far away, is it, my friends? I mean, we live in a little snatch moment compared to timeless eternity. And so what's happening here? Paul is saying, look, I don't seek the physical gift. I'm, I'm seeking the generosity that's growing in your heart, the fruit. I'm thrilled that you're growing. Well, secondly, God does promise to meet our needs. Let me show you this promise. It says in verse 18, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You know what Paul's saying here? He's saying, listen, I've gotten all the money that you need to give me. Paul, in essence, is cutting off the giving stream at this point. I'm well supplied. It's the same phrase he's using for how God will supply all your needs. I'm over abundantly supplied for, so we're, we're ending the giving thing. I now want to make sure that you understand that as you have given to me, this is worship to God. Paul, in essence, is saying, listen, I'm not going to be able to pay you back financially. You're not ever going to see a check written back to you. I mean, you sent Epaphroditus. It was a risky journey, 300 miles, and it's a huge blessing, and I'm thrilled in it. But this is really, what we're talking about is worship. 
and Paul is guaranteeing that God is going to bless them. Not Paul sending money back. God is the one who's going to bless them for what they've done for him. God loves a cheerful giver. He loves this sacrifice of worship. And he's putting it in the same context that he does in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he says you need to be a living sacrifice that is wholly acceptable and pleasing to God. Same words here for pleasing and well-pleasing to God. As they gave, God's pleased with that. The aroma um, idea here in the text of a sacrifice wafting up to God's nostrils, it harkens all the way back to the aroma in Noah's sacrifice that he is shown to be giving in Genesis chapter 8. And all the sacrificial system with whole burnt offerings where people would give the first fruits of everything they had. They would give the lamb that was spotless, not the tortured, beat-up animal, but the best of what they had. They would give that to the Lord. And when a right heart was behind that gift, it blessed God. God wants your heart. What's the generosity of the heart? So how does God provide? I want to show you something that I read, and I just thought this was so great. God provides for your needs. Now, who gets to choose what are your needs? Think about that for a second. I think that when we give, we say, okay, I've given, you know, I've had some good and bad experiences in giving before. I've, I've got real needs that I think I have, and my children have needs, and my spouse has a need. I've got this physical need. Wait, I've got this spiritual need. Who gets to choose the needs, the category for how God is going to bless you? You or God? God does. So when Paul writes this promise that my God, very personally talking about God, will supply Every need of yours, according to his riches and glory, you know what Paul is saying? He's saying, listen, I can't pay you back, but I know God will pay you back, and he'll pay you back meeting every one of the needs in your life that he believes is designated for you. God designates the needs that he's going to provide for, and every need that he designates in your life, he provides for. That's the promise. So if he thinks that you need more clothes or you need more, uh, a better place to live, then he'll provide that need. If he doesn't, then he's not going to provide that. If he believes that you need to be healed or, you know, family members, people in our church family that we've talked about that are sick or ailing right now, if he believes healing needs to happen, then he'll provide for that need. If he doesn't, he won't. But we have to trust God that God will identify needs and he will follow through and bless you according to whatever need he identifies in your life. Can you trust God on that level? Can you sort of say, okay, I've got my barrel of needs that I believe need to be met. And can you just kind of empty that barrel and say, God, will you fill up in the barrel of my life the needs that you believe need to be met in my life? Where you send me, where I work, how I live, how healthy I am, what I, what I achieve, what I don't get to achieve, um, my relationships with people, how I'm growing spiritually, this plaguing sin in my life. Will you identify those needs and in that barrel will you begin to meet every one of those needs? That's how this promise works. We don't get to say, no, we have this need, this need, this need, this need, this need. We can ask God about those things, but ultimately we have to say, God, you have to supply for all of my needs according to your riches and glory. See, the point isn't that we are glorified. The point is that 
God is glorified. So God gets to choose the needs he wants to meet, the ones that bring the most glory to himself and to his son, Jesus Christ. It's according to his wealth. He gets to spend his wealth however he wants to spend it. He gets to meet the needs he wants to meet in your life. And so it's incumbent upon us to trust God as we sow bountifully, as we give our resources, we reap the harvest. Have you ever been in a situation where you go, man, I didn't expect for God to do this for me or bring me to this place or to transform my life in this way? And it wasn't only until you'd gone through something and you looked back and you said, wow, God, you were really changing my life and meeting needs that I didn't even know I had all along the way with circumstances and situations that changed my life. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that. Or where you, you give money. You say, I don't know if I have um, this to give, but you give it anyway, and you sow a seed, and then suddenly something comes into your life, and you go, wow, I didn't even know I had that need that was going to be met. It, it wasn't even in, on my radar. And, Lord, you provided in this way that I could have never concocted or contrived for myself. It's all according to his riches and glory. Well, Paul ends this section in this book of the Bible in verses 21 through 23 by answering a question. Paul answers the question, did the investment into Paul's life pay off? You know, they had supported Paul financially when he first launched from the church in Macedonia. But 10 years later, has there been payoff as Paul has been imprisoned in Rome? I mean, at some levels, on a human, uh, from a human perspective, you could say the missionary was on the move, he was preaching, and then he got shut down because Caesar won and got him in jail. What happened? Look at verse 21. Paul says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. He's just given a doxology to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever, amen. And he says, greet everyone in Christ Jesus. Greet Yodia, greet Sintichi, greet all your family in Christ. I just want to greet you all. And then he calls the church to remember that he and Silas and Timothy are greeting the brothers who are with you, greet uh, with me, greet you. But look at this. All the saints greet you. All the church in Rome greets you. Remember, Paul wrote a book to Rome called Romans. In other words, people got saved there. Philippians 1.12 says the gospel was on the move. It was advancing in Rome. How did this work? He says, look at verse 22, especially those of Caesar's household. It's a key phrase. This is a fascinating concept. It's the idea that Paul was put under house arrest by God's design to win people in a behind-the-scenes evangelistic effort that was transforming a culture from the inside out. He was strategically put in Rome. He was strategically imprisoned. He was strategically chained to guards. And the gospel, through his testimony and his life under house arrest, was going out like something going viral through the Internet. The gospel was getting out. Guards were being saved. Uh, Probably workers in um, the Roman palace area were being saved. The butler, the maid, the cook, you know, the accountants, the politicians. They're, they're coming to Christ. And those who, this is irony here, those who were persecuting the church, suddenly from the inside were praying for the church. Those who had imprisoned Paul as a prisoner were being set free from Paul's message. 
You see the strange irony there? I tried to put this in a 21st century context. It would be like a preacher being incarcerated and taken down to solitary confinement in a bunker, you know, outside of the Capitol. I was just in D.C. driving around the Capitol. So you're, you're you know, in the, maybe in a bunker underneath the Capitol building under solitary confinement, 24-hour watch by secret service agents who are watching you and who are being influenced by you as you preach the gospel and live your life and write letters and have visitors come from other churches. And you're, you're living this gospel life out in such a way that it's beginning to influence the White House. It's beginning to influence the politicians. It's beginning to influence the country because CNN headline news gets, gets uh, wind of this. And because of freedom of speech and press, they begin to cover this 24 hours and the word and the message of the gospel is on the move in the most unlikely way. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, yes, when you invested your heart in me going to Macedonia and going on the mission field, when you backed me in that way, amazing things that we could have never dreamed of happened. It's missionary work. You can't program missionary work. You can't know the outcomes, but amazing things happened through giving. So, one last question. Why do we give? We give because invest our hearts in people, in mission, and in God. Let me take it one level deeper, put it in the context of Christ. Why do we give? Because Jesus gave himself dying on the cross. He was rich. He became poor so that we could become rich in faith. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Jesus gave the ultimate love gift did he communicate love when he died on the cross did he communicate his love to you because that was the point he communicated love greater love has no man than this that he lays down his life for his friends jesus connects mission to your life jesus went on the ultimate mission field by going to the cross at golgotha because he suffered we enter into that sufferings. We fellowship in the sufferings of Christ with him, and we are connected to Christ's mission. Thirdly, Christ dying on the cross is the ultimate form of worship. You want to be consecrated in worship? Look at Christ and how he consecrated himself. He set himself apart to die on the cross for you. And I love this. i got to go to one more passage. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. It summarizes this very well. Paul says, walk in love. Why? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When you give your time, when you give your talent, when you give your treasure to Christ, you are following in the very footsteps of Christ where he marched up the hill of Golgotha and died on the cross for your sins. Giving reflects the gospel. Giving is right there with Jesus in terms of his sacrifice of worship that he gave to the Father. Jesus, yes, did he die for you? Did he die for the world? Yes, but you know what? Christ, first and foremost, died for God. He absorbed the wrath of God that we deserved and stood in our place dying on the cross as a sacrificial gift for you and for his God, the Father. Dying, being buried as a sacrificial worship to God, a, the ultimate love gift to you and to me. He rose again on the third day. And because of the gospel and because we want to be like Jesus, that's why you give 
And so my encouragement and exhortation and admonition to you is enter into this fellowship. Participate on new levels at Anchorage Grace Church. Why? Because you want to be like Jesus. Be a giver. Participate in giving to people, giving to the mission, and giving to God as sacrificial worship to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for...